From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. So if it turns out that the, uh, the brain is a quantum object with enough recursion built into the object is sufficient to give rise to what we, th we think of as awareness, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. When I was a child, I thought mind control was reserved for special occasions. Rare events like alien visitations, certain epic fairy tales, or spirits of the undead coming back to deliver messages seemed the only proper times for mind control to pop up, and even then only in my imagination. But as I've grown older, I've slowly become more aware of the different kinds of mind control and how we experience them in real life. Sure, I see hundreds of advertisements a day, and that's one kind. But recently, I was sitting at the table with my dad, and he told me about something called rock theory. Maybe you haven't heard of it. It's the theory that the success of our relationships depends on which person gets the power, the rocks, by making the other person feel less secure. Starting to sound familiar? Stanford Storytelling Project on KZSU 90.10, and I'm your host, Rachel Hamburg. Today's show is about the many forms of mind control. These days, it seems like there's an element of mind control in everything. Mind control in the fairy tales that we adults tell ourselves, mind control in patriotism, in dreams, and yes, in romance. What I'm trying to say very inarticulately is that um, perhaps, despite appearances, I like you, just as you are. Pretty seductive, huh? But not every guy is lucky enough to have a stunning smile, a perfect bone structure, and an athletic bod. Not every guy can walk up to a girl and sweep her off her feet without a second thought. Sure, there are a few Prince Charmings out there today, but even in the Middle Ages, 95% of the population was just peasants. So what about the little guy? How's he going to get the girl? Well, it turns out that chivalry isn't the only option. There, uh, there are specific hardwired signals that you are evolutionarily calibrated to demonstrate when there is a man of high value in proximity to you. They are touching of the hair. What you just heard was Mystery, a famously successful pickup artist giving lessons to other young hopefuls. Yep, that's right. You can take lessons on how to pick up women, and what Mystery advocates basically amounts to mind control. Sounds a little more like the evil sorcerer than the dashing prince, but hey, as long as there's a happy ending. According to The Game, a pickup how-to by Neil Strauss, the mystery method is so good it's like an equation. But when I told my friends, Charlie, Sam, Will, and Yaakov that real-life romance could be as easy as pie, they didn't believe me. So one Saturday night, we decided to try it out. The plan was to hit two parties, a salsa dancing party, <laughs> 
and a concert at a dorm called Chi Theta Chi. Before hitting the party scene, we got together in a dorm lounge to lay down ground rules and discuss the mystery method. Everyone was pretty nervous. I'm nervous. I'm terrified that they're going to find me out for the fake I am. I'm excited for someone to find out on the fake. Yeah, I'm really into that. I'm just going to relish that moment of exposure. I'd rather they just think I'm freaking sketchy. I mean, you look pretty sketchy as it is. We also had to clear one thing up. Charlie is not a misogynist. Neither is Sam. Will's not a misogynist. Sam is also not a misogynist. Mm-hmm. I am also not a misogynist. Of course, I had to explain the rules. They were a little embarrassing, but we decided to be bold. I think we have to use these exact lines for this experiment to be like valid. This is not a double-blind experiment here. We no. are feeling awkward because we're doing this. People will either shut you down very fast or talk to you about something that's relevant. But in practice, it was a different story. Here's rule number one. Apparently you're supposed to dress kind of uh, peacockishly. Rule two. Wait, can I approach a group of girls? Always approach people who are in group because uh, girls are going to be creeped out, A, if you approach them while they're alone, and B, attractive women never hang out alone. I saw some couple people I knew, I gave them hugs and sort of, you know, danced adjacent to them. But, I mean, it's a little awkward. Like, I went over to some people, and then we were dancing, and then everybody sort of, like, turned back to the group, and I was dancing alone all of a sudden, and it felt really awkward, and I'm like, crap, where's Jakob and Will? And I ran over back to them. Tell me. So it's 1,100 hours. Sam is working the crowd right now. After a brief group meeting, he's interceded into a circle of four girls who he may or may not know. He didn't know some girl. He was, you know, dancing quite close to some other girls, but, you know, far enough away to be innocent, close enough to be closer than I was. And he's making them laugh. One of them is, is swaying, clearly not the target. I'm thinking, I'm thinking set from the left is probably probably what he's going for, but I can't really tell. He's a tricky one, and uh, we'll just have to see how it turns out. This could be entirely wrong, and he probably knows all of them. But uh, so far, I would say MVP is... If the groups are strangers, which I'm assuming they're going to be, um, you have to have some sort of an opening line or two or three rehearsed so that you don't stand there awkwardly. Something like, if I wasn't gay, you would so be mine. <laughs> what? This um, no play, clearly. I mean, he Wait, has what? 300 lovers. Doesn't that mean that he's gay? No, but then you have to, you know, you have to work over the next 10 minutes or so to convince them that you're not, in fact, gay. Um, seems like a lot, of, a lot of work. Yeah. If I was just going to a lot of conversations, like, so, like, what class is it? And, like, you're trying to think of, like, a way to hit on them. And just, like, <laughs> what year are you? Scott Herndon. Uh, I love Scott Herndon. You get a chance. Take a class by Scott Herndon. I'm out. I'm, He's the I'm best genius. English teacher I've just ever had in my mind. entire life. Touch his mind. He touches your mind in ways that you think is inappropriate. Yes. It's, it's Will and Sam tried some others. We had a talk about, you know, get morale up, like about first lines. First lines are really tough for me. We, we tried how's the band, and then we, we prepped that a little bit. He prepped it on me, and then he went and prepped it on the girls, and it worked out. Um, in fact, I heard the first line, but I think it, it they, they responded, you know, very amiably, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what it means. I'm just not sure right now. I'm, I'm a lot of confused. And,
The next few rules came as a package. They basically fell under one phrase, and listen carefully now. Isolation is key. Okay. So I just have to ignore one girl, and then later hit on that one girl. Ignore the target, for the most part. If there are men in the group, focus your attention on the men. Give the target a compliment that sounds like an insult. A neg, is what they call it. Get her friends to notice, i.e., it's so cute, your nose wiggles when you laugh, or you've got man hands and then get them all to laugh at her. This is where I feel like you're kind of stuck because it just says convey personality to the entire group. Pay particular attention to the men and the less attractive women. <laughs> um, during this time, the target will notice that you are the center of attention. Neg the target again, if appropriate. Ask the group, so how does everyone know each other? This is when you figure out if the girl that you want is actually taken. If she is, if she's spoken for, then you say something like, it was nice to meet you, and you leave. If she is not spoken for, say to the group, I've sort of been alienating your friend. I followed your steps perfectly, and your steps perfectly failed miserably. I said, hey guys, how's it going? Like, how's the night been? I don't remember the exact words. I was in the zone. <laughs> and then, and then they're like, good. Awkward smiles exchanged among members, and then I I made sure to ignore said girl. I, I kept her to my right. So yeah, that was good. It was, that was good. And then I was ignoring this girl to the extreme. Unfortunately, when I then was like, oh, I'm sorry, I've been ignoring you. She's like, huh? What? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't notice. And then from there on, it was just like, oh, haha, -ha, I'm doing this thing for a study. And then it was just like, okay. At this point, the rate of failure was high. Well, how's it going? No successes, no attempts. I've just been walking around. No attempts? No attempts. I even got desperate enough to try the game myself. Up until then, I'd been using my hefty microphone and headset as an excuse for why I couldn't sacrifice my dignity and play the game myself. But then, I developed a really brilliant plan. So, I have a really brilliant plan. My plan is to uh, use the recorder to my advantage. I have this, so I have this really big microphone and, um, and recorder and big set of headphones and stuff. And, you know, they say you should do demonstrations with magic and stuff like that. But uh, since I have this giant piece of technology, I feel like I should just go up to a group and ask them what's on their minds with the recorder. And I feel like this will be incomparably brilliant and awesome. It turned out not to be so brilliant. I, I can hear you really well, actually. What? 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 This is recording. What? Why are you saying what over and over Because over I have no idea who you are. What? I'm sorry? I said, let's destroy everything. The only solution is to burn the Theta Chi library to the ground. We needed to recruit someone new to keep morale up. I overheard this. How are you doing tonight? Not bad, what's going on? I don't even know. And decided that I had found some true talent. But sit down, sit down. Here's what you gotta do. You can't do it like that. Because in that order, would do a double, like, decreasing. You have to you have to go in, ignore them, and then build them up a little bit, and then tear them down that much farther. See, that's how it really works. Okay, oh, just a second. I know him, and he's made eye contact with me. He has acknowledged me being here. And so I take... Okay, so here's part of the game. Only this is guide-to-guide -guide correspondence, right? So this is like where you both pretend like you don't realize each other. That way it's not awkward, and you're like, oh, man, I didn't see you here, but you both know that you're like, you both pretend like you knew. Like you knew.
my case, I'm just gonna call him out on it, and I'm gonna be like, hey, you looked at me, and then you didn't say hi, and then it's gonna feel real awkward because I called him out on a social faux pas, which you're never supposed to talk about, which is the like the silence that ensues after like. I don't even know. Like, once you acknowledge that you know somebody, but you don't acknowledge it publicly, and then you pretend like you haven't seen them. Evan Zeitler! Don't come over and say hi. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Oh, yeah. Walking around like, you know what? How you doing, boy? Brilliant. This guy was so good that we figured he could at least move the girl away from the group and get to Mystery's next steps. You isolate her from the group by telling her you want to show her something cool. And you can try, and at this at the salsa party, it might just be like you want to dance with her or something, because I don't really know. Um, you can try holding her hand now. If she squeezes back, it's on. You start looking for other IOIs, which are indicators of interest. After you fascinate and intrigue her, tell her, beauty is common, but what is rare is a great energy and outlook on life. Tell me, what do you have inside that would make me want to know you as more than a mere face in the crowd? And he did manage it. He did nearly all of the mystery steps, plus a few of his own. So first, I made my appearance, right? I kind of showed up, um, I hung out, I pretended like I was, you know, looking for somebody, like the classic move. You're just like looking around, you're like, God, I can't find this one person. So then you like look into the group and you're like, hey, do you guys know blah, 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 like whatever. You know, like, have you heard and seen blah, 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 and they're like, oh, no, sorry, I don't know them. They're like, oh, okay. And then you kind of like get some information out of them, like, I figured you were blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, oh, okay, just kind of running off of that, figuring out who they are, like what they're doing. But you don't ask any indirect questions to the person who you want to talk to, right? Because you don't, because first of all, the answers they would give wouldn't be any better than the other answers. So you might as well get the real answers you want, and then just like later, like filter in the information that you want from them to like them, so that you don't feel like you're giving like a weird amount of questions to a weird amount of like people you're like I'm gonna ask you a question you a question you a question and then I'm not gonna ask you a question until I actually want to ask you a question about what I really want to know but then I didn't even ask that one because she kind of like walked away she like went into another like mini click because they're like oh we don't want to talk to this guy who just wants to know where this person is right because that's stupid so I was like okay she left I can't like move into that click and do the same thing because obviously that'd be like contrived so I just like walked away I just played it cool laid my cards down on the table and what do you know later that same night She's just like chilling there like her friends have just walked away. She's just like chilling there and I just like walk up and then I just like start a really casual conversation because it's already established that I do not seek out her company like conversation sort of thing. So like it's not the sort of thing where it's like weird because she does not feel like threatened because she does not feel like she's being like approached or attacked. It's just like sort of a social like oh I saw you earlier it's fine for us to talk because I, we didn't talk earlier and I was talking to everyone else in your group. But so then you kind of like move in and then you're just like have a really legitimate conversation. It's not even like contrived or anything. It's not you actually talk about real things and you talk about like things that actually matter to you and like things that you actually care about as opposed to like stuff that you have to make up right and then you can kind of like build on it because you already have kind of figured out in your head like what you have in common what you actually want to talk about you know because you were figuring out all this when earlier you wanted to ask them a real question and they walked away so but even he didn't get to the final step no one did actually either kiss her or like you can say this is what you can say you can say do you want to kiss me and if she says yes, then kiss her. If she doesn't say anything, say, well, let's find out, and then kiss her. And if she says no, then say, oh, it just looked like you wanted to. And that way, you know, it's her fault. So, and, or, or you can tell her that you have to go and be like, um, where can we continue this conversation? 
and or like when can we continue this or how can we but don't ask for her number because then she could say no and that would hurt your manliness The salsa party just wasn't the right environment for the final rounds. As Charlie put it, half of the game is isolation, but at a salsa party, there you are, dancing, already isolated. And then it would have been hold hands, but there you are, already holding hands. <laughs> it would have been like, say like you look like you're gonna, you want to kiss me, but that was just way. This is the whole point. It wasn't going anywhere. Not any. Not in any way that uh, the game expected. I think to may go. maybe Will and I should have left. Maybe you should. Maybe failure. Utter failure. The game is the worst plan of all time. <laughs> Why? What happened? <laughs> because they just like completely unimpressed. Like, what are you doing? Like, I, I was okay. Like, they don't. They, have, they don't catch on. Catch on to they the fact that you were playing the game, or no? They just didn't catch on to anything. They're like, okay, like they didn't. I don't think they recognized that like anybody was like trying to like. We failed. Well, most of us failed. See that? See that? That was like social dominance to the utmost level. You just kind of like tell them that you know what, you can't do that, and you can't just walk around like that. And this person's trying to get in the door, but they don't know how because it's locked from the inside. Bye. In the end, though, do we actually want to have this much social awareness? Is romance really romance if it's not the marriage of true minds, but the exercise of social dominance, of mind control? Even if we were good at the game, even if the mystery method got me the guy of my dreams, I'd have to live with a ticker tape of social cues running through my head all the time. And that would be exhausting. We all agreed in the end. Being good at the game just isn't worth it. Unless, of course, you're this guy. What's been on your mind? Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm stopping out of school. To make music. To make music. To make... To on the ukulele. Well, on the ukulele. On life. On a girl. Beautiful, beautiful music. You can make beautiful, beautiful music on anything. <laughs> We're all just instruments, aren't we? Um, when you say make beautiful music on a girl, do you mean it in the same way that you would make beautiful music on a ukulele? <laughs> I mean, it won't be necessarily like melodic and have a verse and a chorus in the traditional sense, but in the end, it will make the same beautiful outcome. This guy might be the master. There are no masters, only students. Thanks to everyone, Charlie, Will, Sam, Yaakov, and those who understandably wish to remain anonymous for their participation.
So maybe you aren't surprised that there's a little mind control to romance. Thanks to books like The Game and Reality TV, we're used to the cynicism behind the modern dating scene. But I can tell you one thing that's defied cynicism for centuries. Fairy tales. A tiny little poem by Emily Dickinson sums this up perfectly. Stegner Poetry Fellow Elizabeth Bradfield reads, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise, as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Even though Emily Dickinson warned us about them from her isolation, fairy tales still seem protected from the logical scrutiny of the modern American. That is, until Alora Carmarkar, Amber Davis, and Noah Burbank came along. Would it surprise you to hear that Sleeping Beauty, A Fire-Breathing Dragon, Prince Charming, and Our President all have something in common? Stanford student Elora Carmarker travels from Wonderland to the realm of modern international politics and back again, and finds that sometimes they're the same place. In a distant land, a knight embarks on a noble errand. He enters an enormous cave carved into the rocky mountainside. The knight holds his torch aloft and it casts a thin light into the blackness. He travels the cave for hours and hours. Suddenly, the courageous knight spots two eyes gleaming in the dark. What did he encounter? What evil creature lives in a cave? Dragons. Ogre. Reptilian. It's a troll. Dragon. I think it would be a bad dragon. It would have like really slimy scales. Witch or warlock or something like that. A dragon. A dragon. Troll. A furry monster. It has brown fur. I guess it looks like a grizzly bear but like with bigger teeth. And not a big snout. And okay. no round ears. Now imagine I hadn't told the fairy tale. I'll ask the question again. What is evil and lives in a cave? An eel. Snakes, I guess. A bat. Animals. Bears. Bats. Something happens when I ask the question in a fairy tale setting. When I asked this question to one interviewee, he squinted his eyes, leaned back into his fancy chair, and stared off into a corner of his office, seemingly in some other place. Maybe a cave. Others acted similarly, although in less fancy chairs. People seem to like my question a lot more in the fairy tale setting, but why? What makes fairy tales so appealing? I think the reason I found it appealing was because it didn't correspond with reality. It was just so exciting to me to be like sucked into this whole other different world. Fairy tales provide an escape into an enchanted, magical world. But the appeal of fairy tales has got to be more than just escapism. After all, nobody reads romance novels to their children in hopes that they'll grow up to be good people. Joshua Landy, director of graduate studies in the French department at Stanford, agrees. He is currently starting a new interdisciplinary major at the intersection of philosophy and literature, where he spends his time thinking and writing about how people learn from fictions. 
Professor Landy thinks that fairy tales function as useful mnemonic devices or memorization tricks for teaching children lessons. The boy who cried wolf, the parent can say at the end, and you shouldn't cry wolf, right? You shouldn't fake people out. And then later on, you can just say, don't cry wolf, and then the whole thing comes back. Fairy tales are a medium everyone likes. Parents don't use PowerPoint presentations to teach their children not to be fussy about their porridge. Let's take a closer look at just what kinds of lessons children are learning from fairy tales. If you're a good person and you do the right thing, then things will work out in the end. Don't make fun of people because they're different. It hurts their feelings and, side note, they could grow up and become beautiful. I already knew that fairy tales taught me to be good and determined and not a faker, but they also seem to have implicit and unstated lessons. They teach us that good triumphs in the end just because it's good, and that patience will always pay off eventually. Fairy tales do a lot of things we're not necessarily consciously aware of. One of the most important of these things is that they are emotionally comforting. I like Cinderella's friend. So when I felt really lonely, I would always think about the mice and having friends like them. I guess I kind of sympathize with the ugly duckling. <laughs> I think everyone has the experience of feeling a little bit outcast sometimes. We identify, sympathize, and take comfort in fairy tales. Lanier Anderson, that man in the fancy chair, is an associate professor in philosophy at Stanford. He is currently working on the new philosophy and literature major with Joshua Landy. He discusses the psychological value of fairy tales. I don't think I'm saying anything very original here, but many of those stories have very, very dark elements. And a lot of them have to do with very basic human fears. Part of what makes the stories compelling is that they provide a forum for people to think about and process these traumatic life events. Professor Anderson thinks that fairy tales present a space that is psychologically safe, where things are simpler and children can work out their problems and role-play them away. This opinion is also held by Bruno Bettelheim and Julius Huescher, two leading psychoanalysts specializing in the psychology of fairy tales. It is in fairy tales that a raven-haired beauty with blood-red lips has exactly the same problems we do, and where everything always works out in the end. One of the reasons fairy tales are so effective in teaching implicit and explicit lessons, and in providing the safe space, is because they cast themselves as universal and timeless. Most fairy tales begin in a time long, long ago, in a kingdom far, far away. This helps us suspend disbelief, so we're more willing to imagine dragons and wizards and magic. It also does something else. It makes the lessons learned in the story seem universal and always relevant. Psychiatrist and Jungian Fred Burbank has had a lifelong interest in fairy tales, and he agrees. The unique things about fairy tales is that they convey meaning to people that is unique to humans and is pretty much independent of the time that the story is being told, what decade or what century, maybe even what millennium is being told in, and it's independent of the culture that the person is in as well. Despite the appearance of timeless relevance, most contemporary scholars consider fairy tales to be cultural products that come out of specific historical contexts. While the story may take place in a kingdom far, far away, 
in a time long, long ago. The storytelling happened somewhere concrete and real. Fairy tales are just sketches, and every time we tell them, we color and shade them from our own cultural palette. Each culture has its own objective truths and constructs its fairy tales according to them. But many people hearing these fairy tales don't realize that the truths they're learning are not so objective. Even the Disney fairy tales so many of us grew up with reflect our own American values and champion humble, disciplined members of the working class, like the dwarves in Snow White. For a more extreme example, we all know the story of Sleeping Beauty, that fairy tale princess cursed to sleep forever until the kiss of her rescuer prince. But during Nazi Germany, it was often told in a very different way. The knight of a special errand was endowed with wondrous power, and he lifted the glorious German soul out of the Cave of Thorns, and all the people cried out, Heil! Hitler was Germany's knight, and the lessons learned from his special errand led to the deaths of six million Jews, hundreds of thousands of gypsies, three million Polish Gentiles, and other innocent peoples, for an estimated total of between 9 and 11 million people. The degree to which Sleeping Beauty was manipulated in Nazi Germany seems too extreme to apply to any other culture or any other time. However, a very similar situation occurred in Rwanda, a land far, far away but this time not long, long ago, but in 1994. In pre-colonial times, Rwanda was divided into two groups, the Tutsis and the Hutus. The Hutus were farmers and the Tutsis were herders. The two got along peacefully for a long time, but somehow something went horribly awry. James Ferrone, a professor of political science at Stanford, helps explain what happened and why. The colonizers everywhere in Africa and other places as well had this problem of how to rule on the cheap as it were because they weren't sending a lot of people to run these places. In order to conquer the Rwandans cheaply, the Belgians told them a story that capitalized on the distinctions between Hutu and Tutsi and convinced them to hate each other. The Belgians got people drawing a much sharper line between Tutsi and Hutu than had previously existed. They developed kind of a story about this natural order, and so Hutu and Tutsi kind of came to accept this notion of them being two distinct races. But the scary part is this. Only a few of them realized that they were being told a fabricated story. I imagine even today, if you went into the countryside, I would be surprised if people had very developed notions about where Hutu and Tutsi came from. These stories about Hutu and Tutsi were told, and over time all that remained was the residue, this lie, that Hutu and Tutsi are fundamentally different. And this lie led to the murder of between 500,000 and 1 million Rwandans by their fellow countrymen. So now we know that people enjoy listening to fairy tales because they're enchanting and magical and provide a psychologically safe space. And people listen to fairy tales and learn lessons, but they might not realize that these lessons are subjective and culture-specific. If this is the case, then I've come across something pretty scary.
If people think that the lessons they learn from fairy tales are objective, but they're really not, fairy tales can be used to influence how people think. We've just seen it in its most extreme form in Germany and Rwanda, and this brings up a very important and honestly quite worrisome question. Could we be living in a fairy tale and not know it? To find out if we're living in a fairy tale, we first need to see how important stories are and how people make sense of and interpret their lives. To do this, we need to travel back in time to right after World War II to a man named Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, a psychiatrist, and the author of a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl argues that Man is a being whose main concern consists in fulfilling a meaning rather than in the mere gratification and satisfaction of drives and instincts. And studies show that Frankl is right. Social scientists from Johns Hopkins University once conducted a poll of American university students to find out what they considered very important. 16% answered, making a lot of money. 78% answered, finding a purpose and meaning to my life. Frankl noted that, In the Nazi concentration camps, one could have witnessed that those who knew that there was a task waiting for them to fulfill were most apt to survive. This echoes Nietzsche when he wrote, He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. To have a why to live, to have a sense of meaning, is to have a sense of where you were, where you are, and where you're going. Sounds a lot like a story, doesn't it? A beginning, a middle, and an end? Well, a significant number of research psychologists thought so as well in the mid-1980s. In 1986, a group of them led by Theodore Sarbin, a prominent psychologist at UC Santa Cruz, published a book about this thing they called the narratory principle, which is that human beings think, perceive, imagine, and make moral choices according to narrative structures. Humans see the world in terms of stories. In fact, many people use fairy tale structures for some of their stories. Fairy tales contain simple plots with polarized concepts of good and evil, yet have complex emotional and symbolic content. We can easily adopt the plot of a fairy tale to the more important emotional content of our own lives, no matter how simplified we have to make it. It doesn't matter if my nose was bent, or my teeth were crooked, or my feet were too big. I could still relate to the ugly duckling. As a great example of how integral stories are and how we understand the world, we have only to recall that less than 200 years ago, most Americans thought it was entirely acceptable to treat another person as property based on the color of his or her skin. But slavery is now illegal. What changed in the meantime? Did scientists publish papers demonstrating the equality of whites and blacks? No, the story changed. In 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the first novel to ever sell over a million copies and by far the best-selling novel of the 19th century. Uncle Tom's Cabin dramatizes a story about the evils of slavery. The story didn't directly instruct people to suddenly realize that all men were created equal. Instead, it characterized the average black slave as sweet, self-sacrificing, and fundamentally good, someone whom only the emotionally depraved could punish with slavery. People changed how they saw the world not because of a change in their knowledge or wisdom, but because a new story had replaced an old one.
So we can pretty safely say that people make sense of their lives through stories. But what kinds of stories are we using? We live in many stories. Stories which dictate our relationships to each other, our social institutions, and ourselves. It seems pretty hard to swallow at first, but a number of our most well-known stories explaining how we relate to the rest of the world might be fairy tales. And so I bring you one of these fairy tales, in the words of columnist Mark Brodine. Alright children, sit still while I tell you a fairy tale, one with heroic heroes and evil villains. Our tale starts with a king. This king was opposed to evil as he told us so many, many times. They're flat evil. That's all they can think about is evil. And as a nation of good folks, we're going to hunt them down and we're going to find them and we'll bring them to justice. This king waged a war against an evil villain who tried to assassinate the king's daddy, invaded other countries, killed innocent civilians, and developed weapons of mass destruction. Once the troops of the good king won a victory over the evil villain, as the king told us many, many times, the evil villain hid in a cave, thinking evil thoughts. They have roused the ire of a great nation, and we're going to smoke them out of their caves, get them running. Make no mistake about it, this is good versus evil. Seeing this for a fairy tale is surprisingly easy, but our motivations are so complicated. We know we like fairy tales because they're enchanted and magical and psychologically comforting, but what could we possibly be getting out of living in a fairy tale that reading it couldn't offer us? Oddly enough, the thing we're getting comes directly from Osama bin Laden and a history professor at UC Davis named Michael Saylor. Saylor's theory, interpreted by Professor Landy, his theory is that stories involving master criminals re-enchant the world by means of the devil or pseudo-devils. So the objects in the world stop looking like mere contingent objects and start looking like potential clues to crimes that might have been performed by a master criminal who's in charge of everything. Then suddenly all this dead matter is energized and sucked out into the direction of a consciousness and agency at Telus. And so the world gets re-enchanted. This theory gives us a better idea of what it is that we're getting out of this fairy tale. We've created a master enemy, and everything is now infused with special power as a potential clue to finding that mastermind. But it still seems like a bit much that so many of us have been convinced of something that simply isn't true. Perhaps we're not being convinced at all. James Sheehan, a professor of modern European history at Stanford, is an expert of modern German history and, appropriately, has studied propaganda. The most effective form of propaganda is propaganda that builds on what people already know and believe. It's very hard to persuade somebody of something they haven't thought of or that is contrary to their beliefs and convictions. So the really effective propaganda, and this is true of advertising, and it's also true of various forms of political persuasion, try to take things that people already believe, that are already a part of their worldview, and use it to encourage them to take a certain political position to carry out a certain kind of political action. 
In advertising, they tell you, sell the sizzle, not the steak. But you'll never sell it to a vegetarian. Maybe on some level we already believe the fairy tale, or at least part of it. What seems harder to admit? That Hitler fooled an entire nation of rational adults into killing all the Jews and trying to conquer the world? Or that the German people, in some way, already tacitly believed part of what Hitler told them? It's pretty clear which seems more likely to be true. And similarly, the Belgians couldn't just make the Hutus and Tutsis hate each other, but instead played on a division the Rwandans already believed in. We now see just how easily we're driven to buy into a story's message when it subtly plays on the prejudices we already have. Islamic fundamentalists might seem like a new anti-American threat, but so did communists. And so did fascists. And a long, long time ago, so did witches. Remember that question we started with? About what's evil and lives in a cave? The answer for our time, as most of you probably know by now. Terrorists and Al-Qaeda. We all know that there is no entity of pure evil that lives in caves. Bears? They're not evil, they're just bears. Bats? They're just bats. Yeah, they're not evil. It appears we are living in this fairy tale, and a lot of us aren't trying to leave it. But now we can understand why. After all, turning reality into a magical, enchanted world where we feel safe and comfortable seems like a pretty good thing. But in staying in our fairy tale, we forget the downsides. We forget why fairy tales are only useful in limited ways. Ultimately, fairy tales are simplifications. And while we may be able to project our emotions and work through them in the fairy tale, things are always complicated again when we come back into the real world. If it weren't for our fairy tale, we wouldn't have any characters of pure evil lurking in dark caves. They would be human and complex. And so we're left with two choices. To continue hiding from the truth in our wondrous worlds of mystery and make-believe, or to start coping with the raw fact that life is complex, and human beings cannot simply be good or evil. Alora, Amber, and Noah are all now seniors at Stanford. Mind control isn't always about controlling or resisting the control of other people's minds. In fact, most of the time it's about controlling our own. There's some poetry about this, too. Sometimes it seems to me that working as a naturalist is both an effort at creating a mind control situation. You want to introduce animals to people. You want to have them under your spell so they pay attention. But also, um, it's work that involves cutting through mind control, um, cutting through expectations of what people might find in nature. So I want to, I want to read a couple of poems that uh, address the work of being a naturalist and when you come up against expectations, when they're undercut and when they entrance at the same time. I think nature is sometimes a bit like a fairy tale. And there's beauty to that and there's also danger. So this first poem is called, The Shepherd of Tourists on a $20 Sunset Cruise Speaks. 
For the third time today, 12 miles out and back to the whales, my voice through the PA flat as last night's tonic. Through my patter of ecology and evolution, I'm thinking, what can I say that will matter beyond this, your annual 10 paid days? Then the twin engines downroar to slow ahead, turns chur the air, and a geyser of breath rises as if on cue. Just ahead at one o'clock, I say from the bridge, a logging humpback. The railings crowd, cameras rise, empathy and longing fog the air, thick as diesel exhaust. I can smell the long dive on the breath of the whale, fishy and pungent. To the tide of awe, I say, whales don't sleep like us. They rest one half of their brains at a time. Then the whale dives, flukes glinting. Ashore, the first seatings are done with their salads. Barbacks have filled sinks with ice. The town is primping its diversions for the taffy-scented night. After the decks are scrubbed and the candy racks stocked, I, too, will disembark, not really thinking of whales, but full of what I've almost lost, my own predictable and deep contentment in their brief time at surface, the shine of thick nares pulling open, falling closed, and as I bicycle home, swerving around couples, squeezing between side mirrors and telephone poles, my ears ring with breath. This next poem that I want to read, Mid-Trip, Mid-Season, is a little bit more um, cranky with the expectations of nature and with my role as a naturalist in engaging with them. It takes place in Southeast Alaska. Mid-Trip, Mid-Season. Cocktail hour in the lounge, and today the special is glacial flowers, muddy booze, blue ice. I am not allowed to drink, but must mingle, chat, smile. I pretend that I smoke. On the crew-only fantail, diesel fume and drone, the slow wear of my hearing, but breeze, but sea, but permission to be silent and expectant. In the lounge, they're comparing colleges and hometowns, that other kind of history. No one wants to know what's outside unless it's off the charts. A bear swimming to a moose, being ripped by killer whales while a wolf pack howls on shore, bald eagle glaring from a cedar snag, that kind of thing. Otherwise, they're exhausted by attending, by my demands to look, look, to look at the broad blur of vista, no points of interest assigned by placards, and find wonder, whether we see anything on the brochure or not. And I am not yet tired of looking, but have lost for a while the will to ask the simple questions that open a place to being seen. Where are you from? What made you come to Alaska? What did you hope to see? The different kinds of mind control we've touched on so far have been about forcing dreams into reality. We've talked about a method that supposedly teaches you to stop fantasizing about your ideal match and go get them. We've talked about making fairy tales into ciphers for more complicated, real events. Elizabeth Bradfield's poetry seemed sorrowful for a lost ability to see the beauty of things as they really are, instead of clouded by dreams. But what if we could take dreams, actual dreams, and use our minds to control them instead of the other way around. Wouldn't that make us happier? 
In our final piece, Leah Yelverton talks about how to do just that. Imagine someone told you you had the power to make the world any way you like it. You could live anywhere you wanted. You could meet anyone you wanted, obscure or famous, living or dead. Imagine your power let you explore with no rules. You could do anything without worrying about the consequences. Think carefully about what you would do if you had that power. Because you do. You know, it's much easier for me to make objects move or make objects disappear is easier than a I had heard of stuff like this happening and I never really believed it tell the story and totally the time and I, I made this guy change I was really worried this guy I used to try to wake myself up when I was sleeping like I would I would be sleeping and I would at random times I guess whenever it came into my mind I would I would try to most of the time when you're in the dream world, you don't realize that it's not the real world. Uh, lucid dreaming, you continue, you are dreaming, but you know you're dreaming. Many of my most lucid dreams are a lot, are somewhere between me acting, you know, me, me sort of being in the dream and me telling a story. Like there's a lot of storytelling that I'll do in my dreams. And it, it, the same way that you might write fiction and sort of be writing along and realize that you don't like where you're caught, go back a page and rewrite it. Usually by the time I realize I'm dreaming, I suddenly like I come to realize, hey, this was a dream, sweet. What happens is all this all of a sudden I start making things happen to it. If I don't like the way the story's going, I change it. Like random people suddenly show up and I wanted them there. And I talk to those people. Like those people will do what I say. November 7th, 2004, 3 p.m. I want to learn how to lucid dream. People say that they can do it, but I have a hard time believing that it's possible for me. I'm going to ask more people about it, and I'm going to write down everything I find out in this journal. So far, all I know is that lucid dreaming has been proven to occur. I talked to a sleep expert from Stanford, Dr. William DeMent, who actually helped carry out the experiments, and he said that the way they worked was that... We tried to have a sleep human sleep laboratory as much like a, you'd think a motel bedroom, I guess, as, as possible. Um, uh, small wires are attached to electrodes. The electrodes which pick up the bioelectricity from the brain and the body are pasted onto the scalp or to the muscles, and then the wires sort of go back to a uh, switch box that is near the head of the bed so that I would be looking for a certain eye movement pattern. You can move your eyes, and you do move your eyes, of course, in REM sleep, and we think it's looking at the events of the dream. But if you're dreaming lucidly, you say, oh, I remember, I'm supposed to give a signal. Now, we can record eye movements electrically, and, and the signal is to pick out two objects that are on the right and the left of, of me, and then look back and forth ten times. Well, then you know you're communicating with the outer world and the outer world knows that they're in touch with you because on the record you'll see right, left, right, left. And ten, and ten movements, movements like that never occur at random. And that's what Dr. Dement said about it, that he actually witnessed people being able to lucid dream. But lucid dreaming sure isn't working for me. I've tried it the past two nights, but nothing has happened. Dr. Dement did mention the leading expert on lucid dreaming, Dr. Stephen Leberge, Maybe he's written something about how to lucid dream. I'm going to go see if the library has anything.
Can I help you find anything? Yes. Do you have anything by Stephen Laberge? Yes, there should be something over on those shelves, to the back right. Dreaming consciousness, signs of sleep, rude awakenings, lucid dreaming by Stephen Laberge. Contents. Learning Lucid Dreaming, Chapter 6. In my view, there are two essential requirements for learning lucid dreaming. Motivation and good dream recall. The necessity of motivation is obvious enough. Lucid dreaming, after all, demands considerable amount of attention, and hence we must be motivated to exert the necessary effort. November 10th, 2004, 8 p.m. Wow, this book is really not what I expected. So far, I have learned some tips about how to realize you're dreaming. Like, if you're in a dream, you can't read the numbers on a watch or letters on a page. So you're supposed to do reality checks a few times a day where you try to read your watch to see if you're dreaming. Ideally, if you do reality checks regularly during the day, you'll remember to do one in your dream. But learning how to lose a dream is not all that book talks about. It says people use lucid dreams to have sex a lot. If you can have sex with anybody and treat anybody any way you like, what about how you act in reality? If you become accustomed in dreams to not thinking about other people's feelings, could that carry over into reality? I need to figure this out before I continue learning how to lucid dream. I'm going to talk to my friend Christopher Collette about it. He has lucid dreams a few times a month, so he should know. There's enough justice in, like, the world is preventing me from doing something really, really stupid. It kind of actually works the same way when I play games, because when I was younger, I used to play games with myself, with like toys or whatever. And normally, you know, if you're playing with that, the rules should be whatever you want. But I would, when I play games, like if I had a toy soldier that wanted to beat some other toy soldier, it wouldn't sometimes because it wouldn't be fair. Like it just wasn't just. And so I think what happens is that same dynamic gets applied to my dreams sometimes. When I'm going through it, it's like it's like here I am. I have control of myself. At a certain point, I'm not allowed to do certain things. Even if I really wanted an anvil to fall on somebody, it's not going to happen. I mean, I get to play with it, but I don't get to necessarily abuse it. The book says that people can use lucid dreams to cure nightmares and to create art. When I talked to a lucid dreamer at Stanford, Theo Johnson Fried, he confirmed what I had read. I remember my mom saying one of her colleagues writes poetry in his dreams. And he's sort of fully lucid all the time. And uh, Roger Shepard um, was a professor here. He's now retired. But apparently he was able, you know, he was very skilled at, at lucid dreaming as a sort of at, you know, the techniques and everything of it. And, you know, would keep a dream journal and write down the poetry in the, the next morning and stuff. November 15th, 2004. 4 o'clock p.m. Okay, I really want to have a lucid dream now. This is getting ridiculous. I've been doing reality checks a lot. I've been thinking about lucid dreaming a lot. I've been reading about lucid dreams a lot. What else can I do? I'm just going to ask every lucid dreamer I know how they are able to lucid dream. And if that doesn't work, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I think getting full hours of sleep, like actually full sleep, which is very rare in college, which might be a reason why it doesn't happen as much, I think. Yeah, it helps when I'm sleeping a lot and dreaming a lot. I have a lot of dreams where I'm taking a nap somewhere, sometimes in Green Library or something like November that. November 17th, 2004. 
2.15pm. I'm remembering my dreams better since I've started writing them down. Also, I was just reading in the LaBerge book this morning that you're supposed to set your intention to remember that you're dreaming. Like, you're not supposed to just say, I'm going to have a lucid dream. Instead, you're supposed to say, while I'm dreaming, I'm going to remember that I'm dreaming. I haven't been doing that. So, the next time I go to sleep, I'm going to make sure, make sure that I tell myself, remember you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Remember, just tell myself this, that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Remember, have to remember that you're dreaming. I'm walking down a dirt road. It's sunny, and there's one other person with me. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I realize I'm dreaming. The dream almost immediately starts fading away, so I try to spin around in circles to keep it. But then I'm back in my room. I decide to do a reality check and look at my watch. It says 24-12 and immediately jumps to another time. Achieving lucidity is much more than just being able to control your dreams. It's taking every moment, dreaming or waking, as an opportunity to create a new path. So I'll just ask one more question, which is, can anyone lucid dream? I see no reason why anyone who really wanted to, couldn't develop uh, the lucid dreaming aptitude. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willengans and myself, Rachel Hamburg. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Noah Burbank, Elora Karmarkar, Amber Davis, Leah Yelverton, and Elizabeth Bradfield, and to everyone who sacrificed their dignity for the sake of science and radio on the game. Original music for the show was written and performed by Palavicini. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank Fenwick and West for their underwriting support. For her ongoing help, a special thanks to Elizabeth Bradfield. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu.